Hello, and welcome to today's edition of Tabernacle Today, a podcast maintained by the Tabernacle located in Danville, Virginia. The following sermon is by Dr. Danny Campbell, senior pastor at the Tabernacle, and was recorded during our Sunday morning service. To view the entirety of our service, please visit our Facebook page at The Tabernacle Family or our YouTube channel at The Tabernacle Today. Additional information about The Tabernacle can be found at our website at www.thetabernaclefamily.org. Our prayer is that you will be blessed by the Word of God today. Turn in your Bibles as we join Dr. Danny for another edition of Tabernacle Today. Amen. Thank you, guys. Is that the cry of your heart that Christ would be magnified in and through your life? I'll tell you what, you know, uh, humans are just about the only thing that doesn't give God the praise he deserves. You look at the great sunrises and sunsets, you look at the mountains and the rivers and the oceans and the lakes and all those experiences, and Christ will get the glory due his name. I've sometimes said I think the number one theme in all the Bible is that God will receive the glory due his name. The glory of God is the central theme of the Bible. He will be glorified through saving repentant sinners who turn to him, but he'll also be glorified in judging unrepentant sinners who remain rebels against him and never bow the knee to him. Well, turn to Exodus 34 if you haven't yet. Exodus 34. And one of the things that we don't often speak of is how we're always rating things as we go through a day. Now, you know you do it. You rate things as you go through a day. We rate our restaurant experience. We rate our kids, teachers, and schools, players and coaches on our teams. We even do it with churches and pastors and singing groups and experiences and things like that. But there's been a very interesting development over the last couple decades, and I just smile whenever I think about it that it happens with things like when you rent an Uber Lyft uh, ride, you know, uh, you ask somebody to come and give you a ride, and it happens with Airbnbs when you book a place to stay and things like that. After the experience, you rate them, but guess what? They turn around and they give you a rating also. The hunter becomes the hunted. (laughs) Imagine a person who gets themselves an Uber and needs to get to the airport fast and when the, uh, wants the driver to break the laws because they need to get to the airport real fast. They want them to speed and break other traffic laws. So he yells at the Uber driver to break the speed limit and the Uber driver refuses. He insists the driver run through red lights but the Uber driver stops at each one. He even tells him to go through a pedestrian crossing when there's a little old lady about to go through it but no, the Uber driver stops and lets the old lady pass while the person's huffing and puffing in the back seat because they're wanting to get to the airport on time and extra fast and things like that. Later that day, the rider, as they're waiting for their airplane, they made it in plenty of time, they didn't need to sweat it but there they are, they get out their phone and they rate their Uber experience with the driver. And they give a poor view, and then they say, the driver did not meet my expectations. A few weeks pass, and that rider wonders why he can't get another Uber driver to pick him up. He uh, puts in the app that he wants an Uber, and they go, no, I, I can't do it. No, I can't do it. No, I can't do it. And he's wondering why they can't do it. What he doesn't realize is the last driver gave him a bad rating also and told others not to give that person a ride because he insisted that I drive unsafely and illegally if I was the driver. So we rate, but we're being rated. And a lot of people are like that with God. 
as they're thinking about things of faith and what's happening in the world, they say, well, God, I wouldn't do it that way if I was God. God, I wouldn't do it that way if I was God. And they're subconsciously giving God a bad rating, but what they don't realize is God is rating them also. And God will always have the last word, amen? He will always have the last word. We are often arbitrary in how we evaluate ourselves and others. But God has a perfect standard we are evaluated by, the truth he has revealed to us in his holy word, the Bible. These days, people speak a lot about having, each having their own truth. You've probably heard people do that. Well, that's true for you, but it's not true for me. And their own what we call subjective code to live by. I receive, I, I do a little bit of this, I do a little bit of that, and I think everybody else ought to do the way things I do and don't do them. They often reject the way other people speak by saying that very thing. That may be true for you, but it's not true for me. My truth is different. And I can tell you on the authority of the word of God, that is a lie from the author of lies, Satan himself, that what's true for you might not be true for somebody else. As we'll see in our passage and message today, God wants us to know that there's only one definer of what is true for all people, and it's God himself and what he's told us in his holy word. And God will have the last word. In Exodus 32, we're in Exodus 34, but in Exodus 32, Moses was so grieved by the people's sin that he said, God, if you'll blot out my name, if you can blot my name out, you can send me to hell if you'll forgive them. And God said, who's in the book is who's in the book. But on the day I settle accounts, I'm gonna remember and have to deal with sin. And I like that phrase, the day I settle accounts. On the day God settles account, all that will matter is that you knew him as the way the truth, the life, and ordered your life according to the truth of his word. Now, for those just joining us today, including our group there from Word of Life who did such an excellent job for us, uh, this is the fourth of six messages just looking at Exodus 34 verses one through nine, seeing what God says about himself as he gives Moses and Israel a fuller appreciation of his name. He had just given them the 10 commandments. And immediately after that, they uh, had accepted living in covenant terms with God as his people. But then they, while Moses was delayed and up getting more information from God, they built a golden calf idol. And so immediately they violated the first three commandments against this holy God who had called them out and made him his people. They had uh, refused to love him as they should, put him first as they should. They had not stayed away from idolatry. They had taken his name in vain. And God had to judge them, but Moses prayed for them. And so Moses interceded and said, God, you know, don't, God gave Moses an offer. He said, listen, this is a test of Moses. He said, hey, I'll start over with you, Moses. Their sin is so grievous against me, I'll start over with you. And Moses said, don't do that. that, that, that that's not what I want. And that will, what, what will others think about your glory and your name? But don't, don't do that, God. And God Moses passed the test and went on. But then God said, you know what? I'm so holy that if I go with you into the promised land, I'll be having to judge it every sight because the people are stiff-necked, they're gonna sin. And Moses said, God, if you don't go, if you don't actually go with us, your presence isn't with us, we don't wanna go at all. Uh, I, I don't want any part of that. And so he passed that test as well. And then Moses, as he was growing in this relationship with God in chapter 33, he said, Lord, won't you show me your glory? Won't you show me your glory? And God said, okay, I'm gonna make my goodness pass before you and I'm gonna reveal my name to you there. And that's what happens next, this 34, one of the fullest 
uh, one of the fullest givings of the name of God yet as Genesis has turned into Exodus. It's still early in the scriptures. When people encounter God, experience him, he gives them a little bit more knowledge of himself to them. When you seek him, he, you draw closer to him and you get to know him the way you do in a relationship. And Exodus 34 that we're about to read is the unfolding of that. But think about how the people must have been feeling. They must have been a little nervous, don't you think? Because they've already heard this about Moses uh, rejecting God's offer to start over with Moses. They're thinking, what will God say to us about who he is? What do we deserve to hear after our sin? They they must have thought, okay, uh, God forgave us after that golden calf incident, but I mean, we're so prone to wander, we we feel it. What's God gonna say to us about who he is? And is he gonna tell us, I'm the kind of God that's given you two strikes, but you're down to your last one? Because God doesn't owe us anything as the creator and the lawgiver. He doesn't owe us anything. In fact, sometimes people talk about getting what you deserve. You don't want to get what you deserve before a holy God because as sinners who have defied him and not lived for his glory, that means judgment. And so in that context, however they must have been feeling there, God in that, in that sense then comes and gives us Exodus 34. We're going to read verses 1 through 9 again. It says, The Lord said to Moses, Cut out for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablet which you broke, the Ten Commandments. Be ready by the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses did. He cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him, and took in his hand two tablets of stone. Verse five, the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord, the name of Yahweh. Verse six says, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, or it's really the word truth there. It could be faithfulness or truth translated. Abounding in steadfast love and abounding in truth, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin for those who repent, but will by no means clear the guilty who refuse to repent, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us for it is a stiff-necked people. We are a stiff-necked people. And pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for your inheritance. We've talked about God revealing his name and his nature and his nurture. Today we're looking at God revealing his norming norm. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the time of worship we've had. We do want you to be glorified, Jesus, in our midst and through our lives. Lord God, forgive us for so many times making life about us and our own comforts versus you and your glory and your plan and purpose that is better than anything we can come up with ourselves. And so, Lord, every time we choose to live according to your truth, it's actually in our best interest and will help us lead the life of flourishing you desire for us to live. Forgive us for thinking that you were holding out on us. Forgive us for in subconsciously giving you a bad rating like the Uber driver does, Lord God. We thank you 
that you have a purpose and plan for each and every one of us. You want us to experience you as the God who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness or truth with us, God. We thank you that you forgive iniquity. Lord God, we understand because you're holy and righteous that you won't clear the guilty who don't repent, who remain rebels against you. But that's not your heart for us. It said later as you reveal your name, your heart for us is a growing, deepening relationship with you. So Lord, today as we look at how truth, your truth factors into that whole growing relationship, God, we pray that you'd bless us as we look in your word. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, we've been saying through this time, when God tells you who he is, believe him. And, you know, he could have just started right out as, okay, I'm a holy and righteous God. I'm angry with you because of your sin. But he says, no, no, I know that you're insecure right now, Israel. I know you're insecure, one who's reading this later on. And so I'm going to start by telling you that I'm merciful and gracious. And so he does that. Now, help me out, church. Let's see how you're doing. I think one of the things I want to happen during this six-week time is for you to get verses six and seven in your mind so much that they're just about memorized. And so we're going to put it up here and you're going to have to help me fill in the blank without looking down at your Bible there. So here it is. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, and again, those are filled in rather than empty there. Go ahead and take that off. Because I haven't gotten this right to the team for the last couple weeks. So we'll try it again next week like that. Y'all help me out. I'm going to say one and you help me finish it, okay? God is merciful and? I need it to be louder. God is merciful and? He is slow to? And he's abounding in steadfast? Love. Okay, you got it. Very good. And then it says he's not only abounding in steadfast love, he's also abounding in faithfulness or truth is what we're going to look at today because it's the better translation of that word. He's abounding in truth. Dictionary.com defines truth as the actual state of a matter, conformity with fact or reality. And that's why the title of this message is that God is the norming norm. He has truth for us that is the standard for us and he's given it to us in his word. Uh, Norming norm makes you think of a norm is like a yardstick. You know, you get the measurement. You get exactly what it is. You can say the actual state of the matter. And sometimes when we are evaluating our lives, we look into God's word and we say, oh, God's word says not to lie. I do a lot of lying. I fall short of God's standard. I miss the mark. He has a life of truth for me, but I lie instead. Now, what God says about something is the truth of that matter, the norming the norm. Now, what's the opposite of truth? Falsehood or lies, right? In fact, Satan is called the father of lies, but the Bible says in Titus 1-2 that God never lies. Now, we lie to each other sometimes. We lie to get ourselves out of a jam. We lie when we don't want to hurt other people's feelings. But thank God he will never lie to us. He cannot lie. He can only tell us the truth. And Hebrews 6.18 tells us that it's impossible for God to lie. When we talk about him being full of truth, abounding in truth, uh, he's not like us. We would be content to be a 95% truthful person. Or maybe a 99% truthful person or a 99.9% truthful person. But God is so committed to his own character that he won't ever tell a lie. 
Instead, he'll always tell us what we need to hear, even if we don't want to hear it. He does that because he loves us, he knows what's best for us, and he does that in the context of still wanting to be merciful and gracious toward us and being slow to anger toward us. Look at what Revelation 22 says about those who will be on the new earth with God. It says, blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and they may enter the city, the new Jerusalem, by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters. And then he says, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. One translation said, everyone who loves and lives a lie. Now, I love the book of 1 Corinthians. Some of you are studying through it right now. And there it says, such were some of you. You were characterized by sexual sin. You were characterized by not being able to tell the truth. But you were washed. You were redeemed. God bought you out of your sin with his blood on the cross. And when you received him, you said, now I want to be a person of truth instead of lies. And so even though we don't do it perfectly like God does, we set our sights to live differently. I remember before I was a Christian, I became a Christian as a senior in high school. I called myself an atheist up until that time. I was the first one that became a Christian in my family. So I didn't have, you know, at home we you know, parents cursed at us, we'd curse back. Everybody was lying to each other. Grandma would send us a nice check every month and uh, uh, mom would pay for me to get home early and get it and give it to her when she got home so she'd have it. Deception was everywhere. When dad found out about it, you know what he did? He paid me more to keep it and give it to him. So we were like that family, deceiving and being deceived and all those different things. That's just kind of how we lived. And I remember when I first came to Christ and was so excited that my sins were forgiven and, and God loved me so much, all the things we just sang about. I, I remember uh, coming across these verses about not lying anymore and, and, and telling the truth and speaking the truth in love and all those different things. I remember when I saw Psalm 51, David's great prayer of confession. There's a line in there where he realized that not only had he been responsible for an adulterous affair and then the death of the lady's husband and the disgrace that was to the nation, he realized that so much of that was about deception and lying. And in there, he says a simple thing that I turned into a prayer for myself. He said to God, he said, teach me to desire truth in my innermost being. I was such a liar, I was such an exaggerator, and I had to start praying that, and I'd catch myself telling a whopper, and I'd go, that's not the truth, I need to pause back. And my friends must have thought I was Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde for a few months in there, because a lie would come out, and then I'd go, oh, I just told a lie to you. The truth is, because that verse was resonating me, it was catching me. And I was, what God was doing is, once his Holy Spirit had taken up residence in my heart through this salvation experience, he was working from the inside out to have me form my life now around God's truth rather than the lies I had lived. Revelation 22 says that everyone who loves and practices falsehood without repentance, that doesn't want to change that, that wants to keep on living a lie based on what God says, they'll, they'll not be in the New Jerusalem. There's another place for them. It's the lake of fire. Now, don't get me wrong. The Bible makes clear that due to God's mercy and grace, the new earth will be filled with people that used to, used to, used to, but they've turned. And listen, uh, I'm very much aware that once you turn to Christ, you still need mercy and grace because we still blow it in many ways. The whole key is that now you've accepted what God says and now you're trying to rebuild your life around his truth. 
And there's a categorical difference in God's eyes between a person that is struggling with something the Bible calls sin but loves Jesus and doesn't want it to be part of their life and a person that says, I refuse to call it sin even though the God's word does. If God's gonna accept me, he's gonna have to do this based on this thing I refuse to say is sin. Do you know the word confession in 1 John when it says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins from all unrighteousness. The word confession actually means to say the same thing about. You have to say the same thing about what God calls sin as his word does. And then because he's faithful and just to himself, he'll forgive you if you ask him to. If you'll put up that yield sign in your heart and your life to him and say, God, forgive me of this and begin this transformation process you have for me, even though it's gonna be hard. So how do we define both truth and falsehood? We look into God's word and see how he defines truth and falsehood. So when God says something is true, it's true. And when God says it's false, it's false. You have, uh, many of you have uh, memorized 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. And it says this, all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching. That's what you should believe about something. It's profitable for a proof. That's what you should not believe about something. It's profitable for correction. That's how you should not behave. And it's profitable for training in righteousness. That's how you should behave. That the man or woman of God may be complete. That's a word for maturing. Maturing, equipped for every good work. Growing in the faith because you're growing in knowledge and application of his word, the truth. Now notice it doesn't say there, Everything that the preacher says is breathed out by God. Everything your dear uh, arch-conservative grandparents say is breathed out by God. The Bible says, test all things with the truth of the word and you'll be ready for life. You'll be ready for a balanced, growing, godly life as you test all things by the scriptures and believe what you should believe, reject what you shouldn't believe, reject how you shouldn't behave and embrace how you should because every biblical command that God gives is based on his truth and is to help you flourish as his child. A couple weeks ago, I compared the Bible to God's owner's manual. You know, you got a car. Many of us have never read the owner's manual. Uh, And in the owner's manual, it says, this is how you ought to treat this wonderful thing that you now own. And of course, many of us don't listen to the doctor until we're 50 or 60 or 70 years old. In essence, uh, what happens is we reach that point where the health, the ways we're eating and the ways we're drinking and all the other stuff we're doing isn't the best way to treat this system, this body, this machine that we have, right? And so the doctor's telling us basically this will help you live longer and live healthier than the ways you're abusing and misusing your body that all of science says don't do, right? The owner's manual of the car says, It it doesn't have to go into all the ways you could put the wrong thing in the gas tank. It tells you the right thing to put in the gas tank. But if you put sugar in instead, then you're the one that's going to have the problem because you've misused what the designer created, right? I gave the illustration of trying to play baseball with a badminton racket. Larry could pitch me a baseball. As a big baseball fan, he could pitch me a baseball, and I say, well, I'm going to hit it. And Larry says, you're using a badminton racket. And I say, well, I, I, I want to do it how I want to do it. You pitch the ball, I've got the racket. He pitches it, and I take that badminton racket, and my badminton racket breaks in two. I've done this before publicly, and it breaks in two. Now, what I can't do is call up the, the designer of the badminton racket and says it didn't work. Because eventually, he's going to get around to asking the question, well, sir, how do you use it? And I said, I tried to hit a baseball with it. 
And they're like, that's not how it was designed to be used. So the second part of this says every sin listed in the Bible has built-in consequences that will be experienced when you reject God's truth for you and engage in that sin. So on the one hand, what he has positively told us to do is for us to flourish in all the ways he knows as our creator. And the things we say no to that he calls sin are to keep us from experiencing heartache and trouble in our lives that he never wanted us to experience. Does that make sense? If it does, say amen. amen. Now, Josh McDowell uh, helped us understand this by using three words. You see them there in your notes, precept, principle, and person. So let's just walk one sin through and see how it relates to precept, principle, and person. Precept's just a fancy word for a command, right? So precept. God, the precept is you shall not lie. Thou shalt not lie. It's one of the 10 biggies, one of the 10 commands. But behind the precept is a principle. There's a principle. And that is that to have relationship with one another, I need to tell you the truth and you need to tell me the truth. If, we, if, if you lie to me, what can I not do toward you very much? That's the word, trust, you said it. So if I'm lying to you and you're lying to me, we're gonna have a problem with trust. And so the precept is don't lie, but the principle is that to have the best kind of relationships with others, they need to be based on truth and not lies. Precept, principle. But here's the neat thing about the character of God. Anything he's commanded us to do somewhere gets back to being rooted in his character and who he is. Precept is don't lie. The principle is we need truth to have a relationship. Lies mess that up, so there's a built-in consequence. If I lie to you, the built-in consequence of that sin is you have a hard time trusting me. But behind the precept and the principle is the person of God. He is a God of truth who we can count on to tell us what we need to hear, not just what we want to. He, he, he's gonna tell us the truth even when it makes us mad because we didn't like that. And that is a great thing for humans on earth because Proverbs 14, 12 says, there's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death. And there's all kinds of people that say, well, I think it's okay and my generation thinks it's okay, so it must be okay. And God's word calls it sin that needs to be repented of. And um, we're careening toward a cliff until we turn to God and his truth, amen? Another consequence is that if you get through life by lying, you're teaching your kids and grandkids to do the same. It's really difficult to read in the 10 Commandments in Exodus 20 and then here again in 34, that if a person won't turn to God, if they won't turn to his ways, then God will see their sin visited to their children and the children's children. Isn't that hard to read? Second, third, fourth generation. When God judges sin, he always does it first passively. He, he, he is slow to anger, and so God is the kind of God who will step back and let us experience the built-in consequences of sin. And we see this consequence of sin going into future generations early in the scriptures. We see it in the life of Abraham. Y'all remember Abraham? Abraham went into a place and he was scared of the folks there. And the Bible makes it look like this was a lifestyle. They did this more than once. It happened twice that we read of in Genesis with Abraham, but it looks like it happened even more. He was a stranger in the land of promise there, and it wasn't all his yet. It was a future promise for the people. 
And so he'd say, hey, when we go into an area, tell the rulers there you're my sister rather than you're my wife. I mean, technically that's true, you know, because we've got a half-sister kind of marriage going on here. It was still pretty close to the early days, so there wasn't the laws later that, you know, all those things. But so she did that. And then, sure enough, we see Isaac doing the same thing in the next generation. He and his wife go into a town and he says, now listen, uh, Tell him you're my sister, Rob. So, and then we see deception just getting into that family. Uh, when they had Jacob and Esau, mom Rebecca actually helped deceive dad Isaac uh, on behalf of Jacob the son. And guess what? Jacob Esau turns into some of the problems that are still in the Middle East today, all the way down through the years. And then what happens is in the next generation, Jacob, man, he's known for tricking and deceiving and that sort of thing. He's great at it, and so is his father-in-law toward him. And then in the fourth generation, what do you see? They're just deceiving and lying, and all those things are happening until they have a beautiful moment where the mercy and grace reset of God is hit for the children of Israel. But that principle will be there until you repent and you embrace God and his truth. It's all based on his the person of truth that he is. He is the truth. So it says here he's abounding in steadfast love. He's also abounding in faithfulness or truth. I'm going to show you the word in just a minute here. But John 1.14, what did it say about Jesus? And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. 100% grace, 100% truth. And what we don't want to do is people that embrace God's grace and mercy, but don't embrace his truth. If you embrace his grace without embracing his truth, you'll be a licentious person. You'll say no to, uh, yes to all kinds of sins of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh. And, and, and you may not, there's a real problem in your relationship with God if you don't embrace the truth. You're licentious and you're j just accepting every sin. And the other extreme can happen too. There's people that embrace his truth but aren't very grace-oriented people. And so with them, they tend to be very legalistic and very judgy and we're getting it right and others are getting it wrong and they judge others out there. Jesus embodied being perfectly full of grace and truth. He was abounding in grace and abounding in truth. They were always part of who he was in everything he did. And so some of the uh, most direct words of truth speaking to others we find in the gospels. Yeah, you're saying right that he's not your husband. You know, you've lived with four or five husbands before this, and now you're shacking up with this guy. And uh, he was calling her to repentance, and she did. You Pharisees, you make all kinds of restrictions on others, but you don't have an inner love for God, and, and, and you're really not doing much to really help others. So many words like that, full of grace and truth from the Lord. John 14, 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Who's the way? Who's the truth? Who's the life? Jesus is. In John 8, 32 and 36, it says, so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. So if the sun sets you free, you'll be free indeed. Now, I don't know about you guys, but when I was in school, I loved open book tests. Do they still do those? They still every once in a while have an open book test? 
Oh, man, I loved them. Because, uh, man, but you know what? They were tricking us. The teachers were tricking us when they gave us open book tests because they knew that if you were really going to still, still do good on the test, you really had to read the chapter. You had to be ready for what would come, right? And so it tricked me anyway. It worked with Simple Danny. Anytime there was an open book test, I actually studied the chapter all the more because I wanted to know when the t- question came about where to go to it when I found it, right? And, and so I loved those kind of things. What's the point, Pastor Danny? Well, life is an open book test. Life is an open book test. And the book is the Bible. God has told us everything he wants us to be about. Here's a quick hint for understanding your Old Testament books of the prophets. As they preach to the people, they almost always are preaching sermons based on, back in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, what God told his people he wanted them to be about. He's saying, I told you to take care of widows and you don't do it. I told you to take care of orphans and you don't do it. I told you to love me with all your heart and avoid idols. You're steeped in idolatry. I told you, I told you, I told you exactly what I wanted of you. And because you've sinned, God has to judge your sin. He still loves you, but to experience and get back on track with him, you're going to have to repent and you're going to have to agree with God what you should have agreed with on God all along, right? It's an open book test. And it's like that pretty much throughout. Look what Jesus said in John 12, 48. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I've spoken will judge him on the last day. The word I've spoken will be the judge. I've told you what's on the test. First of all, as sinners, the only sin that's going to send you to hell is unbelief. You got to turn to me. You got to get rid of your pride and believe in me and turn to me for salvation. And then I'll have a whole lot of things for you to do as you rebuild your life around the truth. But if you're here today and don't know the Lord yet, it comes down to just one thing. And that is, is Jesus who the Bible says he is? And do you have the problem of sin before God the Bible says you have? And because you don't want to know him in judgment, you turn to him in salvation and he saves you by his grace through your faith. That's what should be your focus. You say, well, Danny, I know I struggle with this sin and he's going to call me to change that too, right? Yeah, but that's after. When Jesus said the Holy Spirit will convict the world, he said of sin, what did he say after that? Because they don't believe in me. He elevated unbelief to the top of the list and the one thing that will keep you out of heaven. And then when you receive him, he brings you back to his truth for every area of your life so that you can live the abundant and prosperous life, the flourishing life he has for you. Our God abounds in truth and shares the truth we need to live with us. Now, uh, let's dig a little deeper. The word for truth in Exodus 34 is the Hebrew word emet, which occurs 125 times in the Old Testament. It's usually translated truth or faithfulness. Like Psalm 119, 160. The sum of your word is truth. Everything in your book is truth, Lord. And every one of your righteous rules endures forever. How about Psalm 145, verse 18. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. If you're calling on him and saying, yeah, I want the salvation, but I don't want anything in my life to change, you're not calling on him in truth. You want hell insurance without a relationship with him and without giving your life to him. That's just not the way it works. He gave all of himself for you and he expects you to give yourself to him and take it from there. 
Jeremiah 23, 28. Let the prophet, the lying prophet, who has a dream, tell the dream. But let him who has my word speak my word faithfully, truthfully, amet there. Last time I told you God's steadfast love is often paired with God's truth and with his goodness. We looked at several of those last week. Remember what we said from Proverbs 3, 3, that we're to imagine God's steadfast love and his truth around our neck like a necklace around our neck and it becomes like that breastplate of righteousness for us, his love and his truth. Here's what Hosea 4 says. Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel, for the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness, there's no truth right now in the land or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. Instead, they're swearing, lying, murdering, stealing and committing adultery. They break all bounds and bloodshed follows bloodshed. That sounds like our country, doesn't it? We're not committed to God's love and his truth. We are committed to doing what we want to do even if it hurts others. And it often does hurt others. God's truth is paired 40 times with his steadfast love in the rest of the Old Testament after Exodus 34. But it also often occurs with the word for fearing God. Fearing God. A person who fears God cares more what God thinks than what people think. Fear, forsaking evil, align righteously. Forsake evil, align righteously. When Moses was told by his father-in-law Jethro to look for a certain kind of person who would bless the land by being a good leader, what did he say to them in Exodus 18? He said, moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy, who are people of truth, a met, who hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands and hundreds of fifties and of tens. Look for people who know that God's God and they're not, who have a yield sign on their heart to God, who fear God and who live by his truth. That's the kind of people you need to remember when you vote for Tuesday. How about Joshua 24? He says, now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness, amet. Put away the gods that your father served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And a few verses later, what did Joshua say? I don't know what you guys are going to do, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Being called to serve the Lord, fear him, serve him in sincerity and in truth. Psalm 86, 11, teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. And then look at this, unite my heart to fear your name. Do you have a united heart this morning? Do you have a united heart there at home if you're watching online? Do you have a united heart here in the room or do you have a divided heart? James said a double-minded person is unstable in all their ways. Yes, Lord, I want to hear about your forgiveness, but that's only after I've done what I want to do. Back in Exodus 34, as God told them who he was, he certainly wasn't giving them license to be presumptuous toward him. So he brings in, he's merciful and gracious. He is slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love, but he's also abounding in truth. He expects his people to reorder their lives around the truth of the word of God. And when you do, you can be blessed in a way that won't happen if your heart is divided. Unite my heart. Unite my heart. Is that your heart cry? Unite my heart to glorify your name, to fear your name. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your amet, that I may walk in your truth. That's the number one message for some of you today is get real with God. And if your heart is divided, pray Psalm 86, 11 as a prayer. God, unite my heart. 
help me to stop playing games and some areas are your ways and most areas are my ways. Unite my heart, O Lord. Turn back to Exodus 34 if you went to any of those other verses. In verses 10 through 16, God responds to Moses. He had given him his name and Moses in verse nine says, if I found favor in your sight, O Lord, let the Lord go in the midst of us for it's a stiff-necked people. Pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for your inheritance. In verse 10, God says, behold, I am making a covenant before all your people I will do marvels such have not been created in all the earth or in any nation and all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord for it's an awesome thing that I will do with you. And in verses 10 through 16, he says, listen, I love you so much. I'm gonna do great things among you. I've got a covenant with you, Israel. Now, when I get you into the land, don't make covenant with the peoples there. That's also in verses 10 through 16. Don't do the wicked things they do. And we know from scripture and archaeology, some of the things they would do is they would sacrifice their children. They'd just burn them up as burnt offerings before their God of choice. They, they would cheat on their spouses without even thinking about it. They had all kinds of sin and God was judging them even as he was moving Israel into the land. And God says, I don't want you to be like that. I don't want you to do that which I have to judge. I don't want you to do that which has built-in consequences because it's sin. Your lies will have built-in consequences. Your sexual sin will. All these things will have built-in consequences. Instead, I want you to experience all you can be in me. And when others see that, they'll want what you have. I wonder if anybody's ever wanted what you had. I sure, as a senior in high school, wanted what my friend Doug Barr had. He had peace with God and I didn't. He had standards for living based on God's word and I was just all over the page. How was Israel to respond to their God who's abounding in truth? They were to keep the covenant they'd made with him by observing his commands and not make covenant with the godless peoples around them. And God had a purpose and beautiful plan for that nation. Now, let's do an aside here. Why did God choose Israel back then? I was actually asked that by some Kenyan pastors, they were all from the Maasai tribe, and when I was teaching them, when we went over there uh, November, a couple years back, um, they were saying, hey, Pastor Danny, question and answer time, what about Israel? Why is there so much about Israel in the Bible? In the Old Testament, even the New Testament too, it's just, wh why? What do we do with that? And you know, a lot of people over here, they really don't like Israel. And I said, well, I'm glad you asked. And then I said, Lord, help me answer this question. But what I said to them, I'll say to you guys too. Um, think about Africa for a moment. Tribes fighting each other all the time. Countries at war with other countries and things like that. And I asked these Maasai pastors, I said, now, if you Maasai pastors knew that the Messiah, now, now for God to act in time to become a human and so he could, you know, live the perfect life all humans fall short of, and then die as a substitute, like a lamb from Old Testament days, to be a substitute for sin that God would accept, uh, he had to be born to some nationality, right? Because you can't be born to no nationality. 
Got to be born somewhere, right? It just has to happen that way if you're going to step into time one day. And of course, God knew how this would all unfold before the very first person was created. And I said, if you Maasai warriors knew that over there in Tanzania there was another tribe and the Messiah came from them, would you have a hard time turning to that Messiah? Yeah, we don't like them. Yeah, it would be hard. It'd be built in like that. So, and I, you know, they have similar things throughout the world. In Asia, if all the atrocities that Japanese committed against Chinese and now Chinese against others and Koreans and all that mix in there, if they were told that the Messiah was from China, they might have a really hard time in other parts of Asia. And certainly from Africa to Asia, an African Messiah wouldn't mean much to an Asian person, etc. And then there's Europe, the way that France and England and uh, Germany fought all the time and things like that, you know. And a Frenchman doesn't want an English Messiah. And then what if the Messiah came from America? Nobody in the world would want to follow that Messiah, right? So here's this uniquely situated country, always been small, about the size of New Jersey. And there it is at the crossroads of Europe and Asia and Africa. And is always in the news yesterday, today, and tomorrow, and God's word says much about the future for Israel. All these things going on. And, uh, but what's interesting about it is that throughout time, those who hate God and his truth inevitably wind up despising them as well as his people. And so what a burden for them to bear. Now, Romans 9, 4, and 5, we're putting it up here, says, they are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, that's Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever, amen. Let me urge those of you who read the Bible without reflecting on how the entire Bible is saturated with things you won't understand if you don't understand the rootedness of our Christian faith in God's dealing with the Jews. Dealings that were always there, not just for the Jewish people, but for all nations. Now, you guys are just joining us here, but we looked at how in Nehemiah and Second Chronicles and Nehemiah, other times when the people were far from God, they remembered what he said in Exodus 34. They were steeped in their sin. They needed to turn from their sins back to God. And they would remember, God, you've got us dead to rights with our sin, but you told us you were merciful and gracious. You told us you were slow to anger. You're abounding in faithful love, steadfast love. And if we would repent, you'd forgive us. And so, Lord, we're remembering that. But then we got to Jonah, Jonah chapter four, where God says that this God who's for Israel has the same kind of heart toward everybody in the world, hoping he'll turn to them and be his. So in Jonah 4, 2, Jonah's throwing himself a pity party and said, I knew it, God. This is why I didn't want to come here and preach to these daggone people here that I hate. These Assyrians, kind of like the modern-day Iraqis. I, I didn't want to come and preach to them because I know what kind of God you are. You told us who you are. You're merciful, you're gracious, you're slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and relenting from disaster. I knew if I preached to them, they would repent and you'd save them. And I didn't want them to be saved. So it was for everybody. 
Some little place somewhere had to bear the burden of being that people. Someone once said, how odd for God to choose the Jews. And yet somebody had to be, and they are not a massive people. They're known throughout the world, but they're known as this chosen people, and from them comes the Messiah, who's not just for Israel, but also all peoples. Romans eleven eighteen says it this way. To Christians, Roman Christians, Gentile Christians, he said, do not be arrogant toward the branches, those Jews who currently unbelieve. If you are, remember, it's not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. And then in Romans 15, Paul writes, for if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. That's why they're in the Christmas offering again this year. A lot of people in today's churches just don't understand much about the Bible and it's because it would be the same as, let's pretend this was not, is this real? No, this one's not. Let's pretend it was. But let's pretend it was planted and it was a whole plant together. And we just pulled it out, cutting it out from the roots, and then we held it up here and we said, look how beautiful this is. Look how beautiful these things are. Oh, it's so pretty here. And then next week we came back and we tried to look at them again. By that time they'd already be wilting. A month later they'd pretty much be gone. What happened? We severed it from the roots and it was all part of a package that grew together. And the Bible says in Romans, you don't support the root, the root supports you. Don't forget where you came from, Christians. There, there's a way for you to look at all things, doctrines building in the scripture. And um, so they liked that answer back then. But why do we at the tabernacle believe there's a future for national and ethnic Israel? Real quick here, let's turn to Acts chapter one. Acts chapter one. And this time change thing always gets us about now because uh, now you've lost that hour so you're starting to get real hungry. So we'll bring this thing in for a landing. But Acts chapter one. So we are so thankful for the time we live in where the gospel through us goes forth to Jews and Gentiles around the world. And we look back at when it started. Acts 1, Jesus was about to ascend to heaven. And in verse 6, right before he's about to go back to heaven, before he comes back later on, his second coming. So when they had come together, verse 6, Acts chapter 1, verse 6, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority, but you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. If we're supposed to spiritualize the promises made to Israel and give them all over to the church, this would have had to be the time that Jesus said, whew, I'm glad you guys asked that before I go. There's not going to be any future for Israel as an ethnic and physical reality. All that spiritualized now, and we just talk about that as promises given over to the church. That's not what he said. He said, it's not for you to know the times that those things will happen. Right now, what we're concentrating to is getting the gospel to everybody on earth. And of course, the consequence of that is that when you read Romans 9 through 11 and other parts of the New Testament, we understand there will be a future reality where Christ reigns from earth, from Jerusalem, and it will bless the entire world, starting with Israel first. Amen? So we believe the God who says he is the truth and cannot lie will literally keep 
all the unconditional promises he made to Israel, not just spiritualize them away, and that gives us confidence he'll keep his unconditional promises to us. In Exodus 34, Moses confessed that Israel was still a stiff-necked people, and it's not so different today. It's not so different in churches today. We're prone to wander, Lord, we feel it. Thank God that he's merciful and gracious, slow to anger, that he abounds in steadfast love, he abounds in faithfulness or truth, and he forgives our many sins when we repent. Our challenge is to still believe and to still act on who he says he is here and to order our lives around faith in this great God. Look at this quote from Ken Myers. If our souls were properly ordered, we would love our limits, not despise them. Do you love the truth of God's word? Do you love not only the things he says about who you are in Christ because you've believed, forgiven, adopted, chosen? Do you also love the things he positively tells you to do, to use your influence to get the gospel to other people? But do you love the things he says for you not to do? Don't be among those who steal and lie and commit sexual immorality like the heathen. View your sexuality as a gift for God, someone, something just between you and your spouse that is for bonding and procreation. Do you love the thou shalt and the thou shalt nots? If you're growing in a relationship with the Lord, you'll love your limits, not despise them. 1 John 2, 1 and 2. My little children, I write these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation. That means the substitute sacrifice for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Won't you bow your heads? Thank you for joining us for today's edition of Tabernacle Today. To learn more about the Tabernacle, please visit our website at www.thetabernaclefamily.org. There you may access additional Tabernacle Today podcasts as well as other resources. If you don't have a church home or happen to be visiting the area, we'd love to welcome you to one of our weekly services. Thanks for listening, and we look forward to seeing you back for another edition of Tabernacle Today.